You know, if the last three years have confirmed any of our biblical doctrines as true, it is the doctrine of the depravity of man. I mean, the sinfulness of man, the wickedness of human beings, that's always been true. That's always been true ever since the fall, of course, but given the incessant plotting of terrorists, the conspiring of nations, the posturing for power on the part of world leaders on both the national and international scene, one could argue that it has never been more conspicuous than it is at this moment that rebellion, defiance, and the fanatical pursuit of radical self-sovereignty has never been more prevalent on the planet than it is at this moment. I mean, if you think about it, we're in the book of Judges' state of emergency. But on a global scale, everybody, everybody does what's right in their own eyes without regard for God. I mean, this is Babylon Tower of Babel 2.0. Isn't it only this time magnified by 10,000 times? I mean, think about it. Has there been one week? One week in the last three years where there hasn't been some scandal or global outrage? I mean, we are literally witnessing the entire human race plunging themselves into a ravenous frenzy of self-destruction. We are watching before our very eyes the very shifting of entire civilizations. And what that does, you understand, is create a sense of insecurity, of instability, vulnerability, unpredictability. And what this, of course, does is raise a really, really important question, doesn't it? And the question is, is there anyone in the universe ultimately, actually in charge? Is there anyone out there in absolute control over this global mosh pit for world domination? Or is all of human history just one giant exercise in violence and chaos and pandemonium? And I know you know the answer. But you see, that is a question to which Psalm 2 provides an answer. And by that, I mean the answer, the only answer. Who has the ultimate power in the universe? And who has the ultimate power over sin and evil and sinners and wicked nations on the brink of war is none other than Yahweh himself and his invincible king, the Messiah himself. That's who reigns. That's who rules. That is who governs everything that comes to pass. You have to understand the psalm that you're about to see offers a perspective on history and a window into reality that although rejected and mocked by the world is nevertheless true and exactly what we need to sustain us in a world that has gone insane. And you have to understand the psalm that you're about to see doesn't merely, doesn't merely assert that God is sovereign, although it does that, of course, but rather what it really does, get this, is poetically portray what the end of the world will be and the beginning of a new one. In other words, this psalm, Psalm 2, is nothing less than a poem of prophecy. This is a hymn of eschatology. 
Even a 12-verse portrayal of the final chapters of Revelation when Yahweh's king shows up to the planet, shatters the nations, builds his kingdom, and then rules the world from a throne in Jerusalem. That is where all of human history is headed, and that's exactly where we're going this morning. And yet, and yet, one of the special bonuses of this psalm is that contained in this psalm, in verse 11, is one of the clearest articulations of what it even means to be a believer when it commands people to serve Yahweh with fear and to rejoice with trembling. Do you hear that? Serve, fear, rejoice, and tremble. That's a whole theology of fearing God in one verse. That is a definition of what it even means to be a believer. That defines and describes what a relationship with God even looks like. Serve, fear, rejoice, and tremble. And so what that means, what that means, beloved, is that this psalm will very much be a fork in the road for you this morning. This psalm is going to force you to wrestle with your faith and possibly re-examine your relationship to God because when it comes to our relationship with God, there are two ways that this can go. Either Jesus Christ the King will be your highest treasure or he will be your enemy. He will be your greatest allegiance or he will be your judge. You either give up all or you lose everything. Those are the terms. And that's in Psalm 2. So to prepare you, beloved, for what you're about to hear and see in this psalm, let me ask you, what troubles you this morning? What ails you this morning? What haunts you? What preoccupies your thoughts in those secret moments when you are all alone by yourself? Because it goes without saying that the last three years have furnished plenty of things that are disturbing and troubling and unsettling and even terrifying. And yet, and yet, when we rightly consider who God is and what he has revealed to happen at the end of the age, we find that the fears which were previously so crippling to us fade into oblivion. All courage to face the unknown and the greatest terrors of a fallen world come not from an inner spring of moral resolve, but from a clear perception of true reality. Namely, that one day King Jesus will come and he will make things right in the world. And with raw, delicious power, that is exactly what Psalm 2 portrays. And so here we go. Here we go. Let's see from the psalm who has ultimate authority and absolute power in the universe. Here's where we're going. This morning, I want you to see from our text four acts. Four acts in the drama of history that fill us with courage as we wait for the kingdom. That is A-C-T-S, not A-X-E, if you were curious. Four acts in the drama of human history that give us courage as we wait for the kingdom to come. Act one is this first the ludicrous attempt at autonomy. The ludicrous attempt at autonomy. And the psalm begins with a bang in verse 1, or should I say it begins with rebellion? Look at the text. The poet opens with a question. He says, why? Why do the nations rage, and why are the peoples plotting in vain? 
What is he describing? To, to, to what does he refer? Because this sounds bad. This seems really, really bad. And it is bad, and yet he gets more specific in verse 2. Look what he says. He says, the kings of the earth shall take their stand. The rulers shall conspire together against Yahweh and against his anointed, his Messiah. So first the nations, now they're kings. The ringleaders of whatever, whatever it is they're planning to do, and then it becomes clear in verse 3 exactly what it is they're planning to do. Notice in the text what they say behind the scenes, what they're planning and plotting. Look what they say. They say, let us break apart their bonds and let us cast away their cords from us. And there it is. The scene is now set, and what we have on our hands is a good old-fashioned mutiny. And yet you can already tell from verse 1 that this isn't some mere local or regional concern. Rather, as the inspired poet looks out onto the sea of humanity, he sees, he sees something global and worldwide and international. Notice there the parallels in verse 1. There are nations and there are peoples. This is massive. This is global. This is scary because, because notice the, the, the activity which the peoples and nations of the planet are engaged. It says the nations rage. It says the peoples are plotting. You can see there the nations are angry. And that word anger in the Hebrew, that word literally describes commotion and chaos and confusion. This is almost on the brink of madness. And yet at the exact same time, it is also premeditated. There's a method to the madness. It's organized confusion because it's planned and intentional because look at the end of verse 1. It says that the peoples are plotting. The peoples plot, he says. And that word, that is literally the Hebrew word, to meditate. That's the word, to meditate. It pictures the angry whispers of a collusion, a coup d'etat, a conspiring, a, a conniving together in a furious revolt and global revolution. And here we are, just one verse in and already this sounds hauntingly familiar to us, doesn't it? This is our world. This is the world that we live in. We see this kind of thing from the text every single day in our world, do we not? This is not a safe world. This is not a peaceful world. And that has profound power and potential to grip our hearts and cripple us with fear, doesn't it? And yet, and yet you heard, I hope, two details in the text that turn the nation's rage and the people's plotting upside down on its head, namely when the writer says that the people's plot in vain. Did you see that? This is in vain, meaning this is doomed to fail. This is never going to work out for them. These plans are not only silly and stupid and insane, this is suicide. It's a suicide, and the reason why it is is because the outcome is inevitable. As we're about to see, the most violent expressions of mutiny in history will result in absolutely nothing except to be the means of their own destruction. Which is why he puts verse 1 in the form of a question. Why? Why do the nations do this? Why do they rage? Why do they plot in vain? He's not soliciting information. As if he, 
For reals? This is insane. This is irrational. This is positively ludicrous. What is ludicrous? Look what he says in verse 2. He specifies. He says, the kings of the earth shall take their stand and the rulers shall conspire together against Yahweh and against his Messiah. I get it now. It all makes sense, doesn't it? The reason for the rage and the point of the plan was opposition against Yahweh and his anointed, literally Mashiach. Messiah. This isn't just a global rebellion we're talking about. This is the ultimate rebellion. This is all the nations and all the peoples and all the kings and all their rulers going all the way up in their opposition against the highest level of leadership in the universe, namely against Yahweh and his Messiah. And notice there again in verse 2, the parallels. There are the kings of the earth, there are the rulers, and they take their stand and they conspire together. The nations and peoples in verse 1 are led, represented, of course, by their kings and rulers. You have to understand when it says the kings of the earth shall take their stand, that's a military term. This is bitter. This is brutal. This is a battle. This is war. War against the highest level of leadership in the entire universe because notice, notice the kings and rulers shall war and conspire against Yahweh and against his Messiah. The dual object of their age. And notice what it is they desire. Notice their plan. Notice how they, the rallying cry that binds them together in a unity of a mutiny. Verse 3. Let us break apart their bonds. Let us cast away their cords from us. It's a declaration of independence, isn't it? Repudiation of divine authority. They feel enslaved and constrained and shackled and chained, not by literal chains, of course, but by the word of God and what he has declared in the sacred text. It chafes them. It condemns them. It exposes them. The truth is the nails on the chalkboard of their conscience, the, uh, a rock in the shoe of their worldview, and their response is both violent and unanimous. They rally one another up in a frenzy of insurrection. Let us break apart their bonds. Let us cast away their cords from us. You hear the hints of Tower of Babel there, don't you? And you understand what this is, what we're seeing here in the text is nothing less than the untamable impulse by the human heart to be free. Do what they want. Live as they please. Free to rule themselves as their own authorities. It is, you understand, the universal idolatry of autonomy, that deep-seated lust for self-sovereignty. And yet freedom from whom? Autonomy from whom? Notice, notice in the text it is against Yahweh and his anointed. And we know who Yahweh is, don't we? He is the infinite, eternal, uncaused, uncreated, sovereign God of absolute, undisputed dominion. We know exactly who that is, and so do the nations, and they hate him, and they do and will rage against him. But who is the anointed one? Who is the Messiah? Who, who, who is that? And 
you, you see that the psalm actually tells us exactly. The psalm itself tells us exactly who it is. Notice, notice in verse 6 that he is the king. The king sent and appointed by Yahweh to reign from a throne in Zion. That's Jerusalem. Verse 7, the Messiah is the son of Yahweh himself. That's a title of royalty. And as we're about to see, it's also a hint of the Trinity. Verse 8, the Messiah, when he arrives, he will own and rule the ends of the earth. Those things rightly belong to him. That is his domain. That is his kingdom. Verse 9, he will break the back of wicked nations and shatter the rebels of the earth. And finally, verse 12, he deserves all allegiance. And anyone who does not give that to him will be broken and shattered in the fires of his wrath. That's the Messiah. And what that means, this can be none other than the Lord Jesus Christ himself. He is the answer. He is Psalm 2's final answer for all the terrors of the world. He is the entire Bible's answer for everything that is wrong with the world. And here he is on the page predicted to rule and reign centuries before he ever even showed up to the planet. In fact, I am persuaded, I am persuaded on exegetical and theological grounds that the insurrection described here in verses 1 through 3 does not merely describe the rebellious nature of human beings in general, but is in fact prophetic of a particular rebellion that will come at the end of the age. And by that I mean the godless confederation of kings and Revelation 17 and 19, who under the reign and persuasion and spell of the Antichrist will unite together and take their stand against Jesus Christ. This is, I believe, prophetic of that. And so what this means is that this psalm is not just poetic, it is prophetic. And that moves us to Act 2. Act 2, which I'm calling the confident response of sovereignty. The confident response of sovereignty. Because God, what about God? How will God respond? How will God respond to the greatest act of rebellion in history when it comes? Will he nervously bite his nails? Will he lose sleep over this? Will he wring his hands together, down another scotch, run to the toilet, cross his fingers and hope for the best? None of that. None of that, but, but his response in verses 4 through 6 is nevertheless surprising. Look at the text. The one who sits in the heavens shall laugh. The Lord shall scoff at them. Then he will speak to them in his anger. And terrify them in his fury. But as for me, I have installed, he is speaking now, I have installed my king on Zion, my holy mountain. And you notice there the jolting contrast in verse 4 between the king and the nations in rebellion. They are on the earth in a hissy fit of rage, and the Lord is in the heavens, and he laughs. The Lord laughs at them. He sits in the heavens and he laughs deeply, heartily, boisterously, side-splittingly. 
And the reason he does is precisely because he sits in the heavens, which doesn't describe his distance from us so much as it describes his supremacy over us. You understand this is his transcendence. This is his holiness. He is lofty and matchless and exalted and supreme. And notice there in the text, he's called the Lord. That's, that's the title Adonai in Hebrew. And it's parallel with the one who sits in the heavens. The one who sits in the heavens is, in fact, Adonai. And even that title, Lord, is profoundly theological. It's a title of sovereignty. It's a title of matchless authority and, and sovereignty and supremacy, having all power. This is one who reigns and rules and ordains and orchestrates and governs and guides everything that comes to pass. Which is exactly why he laughs. You understand, this is the laugh of irony his his laugh is the sound of sovereignty his laughter exposes the futility of their mutiny his sovereignty is so infinitely lopsided over them that it provides a comedic quality to the situation diabolical though it is and yet and yet although he laughs he laughs in a darkly comic sort of way because you notice in verse 4 it says that the lord shall scoff at them. The Lord will scoff at them. The kings and the rulers of the eschatological age, he will mock them. A sneering, sarcastic, holy mockery. This is hilarious, only because it's so ridiculous. Wait, are you serious? You're kidding, right? You are going to go to war against me and my king? Oh, that's too good. That's too rich. This is hysterical. And you understand, that's precisely what the sovereignty of God does, doesn't it? The sovereignty of God puts all the sin and evil in the world into its proper perspective, doesn't it? Because they say, don't they? They say that laughter is the best medicine, but I submit to you that the laughter of Yahweh is the best medicine for us because it reminds us that all of the earth-shaking forces unleashed into the world are unleashed by him. That he is in the control room of the universe. That he is the only ultimate cause that all the sins of man and all the schemes of Satan must serve ultimately to advance the kingdom and glory of his son because he laughs the laugh of sovereignty. We can laugh the laugh of faith knowing that nothing happens in the world except from his decree. Do you believe that this morning? That God is sovereign that God is supreme, that not one thing happens in the world apart from his decree. You understand, God laughs to dispel our fears. God laughs to give us comfort. God laughs to remind us that no purpose of his can be thwarted, and his laughter is the most joyful and comforting sound in the universe. And yet, funny though this is in a Gulliver's Travels sort of way, the countenance of Yahweh all of a sudden changes and becomes more stern and severe. The smile now fades and gives way to a fierce and holy rage. Look at verse 5. 
It says, then he will speak to them in his anger, and he will terrify them in his wrath. Notice the increase in intensity. First, he will just speak to them in anger, and then he will terrify them in his wrath. And that word wrath in Hebrew is literally the word Heat, a scorching heat that melts and incinerates its victims. The white, hot, atomic rage of the Almighty, however, will not fall on deaf ears when it comes, but instead it will bring the rebel powers to their knees in subjection. And yet the question is, the question is, what is it exactly that he will say to them that will evoke such a response? What? Is it that the sovereign one will say that could possibly evoke the response of these, this global confederation of kings with their state-of-the-art weapons and surface-to-air missiles and enough nuclear firepower to take out multiple planets, not just our own? And the answer is, they might have nuclear weapons, but Yahweh, has a king. He has a king. And he is the source of terror. He is the reason for the fear. And he will be the worst nightmare come true for these rulers and kings. Look at verse 6. Here is the scary speech of Yahweh. Then he will speak to them in his anger. He will terrify them in his fury, saying, What? As for me, I have installed my king upon Zion, my holy mountain. I know that didn't sound scary. But trust me, nothing could be scarier precisely because the king is the instrument of Yahweh's wrath. The king is the agent of Yahweh's justice sent to beat the world like a pinata with the bat of his wrath. And you notice there in verse 6, there are three features of the text, three realities that we have got to get to the bottom of. First, there is the action of Yahweh. The action of Yahweh. He says, I have installed my king. Funny thing about that word set or placed or installed is that's not what the Hebrew means at all. The word in Hebrew literally means to pour. It's the word used in the ancient world to describe the pouring of molten metal into a mold to make the image of a deity. And the point is the king is the very image of God himself. He is and will be the physical representation of God, the physical appearance of God, the physical presence of God on this very planet. In other words, what this is, you understand, is the very incarnation itself. It is exactly what Paul meant in Colossians 1.15 when he said that Christ is the image of the invisible God. He got the terminology from here. And yet feature number two, feature number two, there's the agent of Yahweh, the agent of Yahweh, because in his wrath and terror, God will pour out his own image, his own representative on the earth. And what does Yahweh call him but a king? He calls him a king. A king who will rule on earth as Yahweh rules in heaven. A king commissioned and sent by Yahweh to depict him, to represent him, and to bring back the planet that rightly belongs to him. 
And there's so many, so many theological connections converging right here at this very moment. The mere mention of king points backwards and forwards and all around itself all at the same time, doesn't it? The mention of king points all the way back to Adam. The first king of the human race created by God to rule the planet and to exercise subjection and authority over it. And yet he blew it with his sin and squandered the kingdom. The mention of a king points back to Genesis 49.10, doesn't it? And the mention of a ruler and a king who will arise from the tribe of Judah, who will wield a scepter to whom the peoples of the world will obey him. The mention of a king points back to 2 Samuel 7, doesn't it? And the description of a king who will emerge from David's line, and one day he will come to earth and have a, king, have a kingdom and reign forever. And the mention of a king points all around itself to the prophets, doesn't it? Who also describe a, a Davidic heir, a, a one to arise from the line of David who will come to earth and rule all things and exercise dominion. And the mere mention of king points forward, of course, to the Lord Jesus Christ, the descendant of David, who confirmed in every possible way that he is, in fact, the entire one, the one uh, to whom the entire Old Testament was pointing. And here he is, in Psalm 2, sent by Yahweh to restore what Adam has lost. But then notice feature number three. Feature number three, the area of the king's reign. The area of the king's reign. Notice what he says. Yahweh says, I have better. I will install my king, Al-Tzion Har-Kodshi, on Zion, my holy mountain. And you know what Zion is, don't you? You know where Zion is? That's Jerusalem. Like the literal city, Jerusalem, on the planet right now. Not as it exists in its current state, but as it will exist in the future. In literal Jerusalem, which will be the capital of the kingdom the headquarters of the king, the centerpiece of the earth, the gravitational center of the Messiah's reign when he arrives and from which he will rule the nations and subjugate the entire earth. And what that means, listen very carefully, what that means is that the fulfillment of this psalm is not some ethereal heavenly realm out there somewhere, but the very planet on which you exist even at this moment. And I'm wondering if you're okay with that. Because you understand that paradise was lost on the earth and it will be regained on the earth. I wonder if you're okay with that. And what I mean is, what I mean is most people's conception of the age to come consists only in this vague notion of heaven where people have togas and they play harps while sitting on a cloud. Not in the Bible. Not in the Bible. And yet we can't seem to shake it. And my point is, what I'm saying is, you need to make room in your theology for geography. What is geography but theology made visible? What I'm saying is, the fulfillment of God's promises to his people demands, demands their tangible, physical realization on the earth in a literal kingdom ruled by the Messiah. And the real question is, do you feel the hope intended by this? Do you feel the hope intended by this? 
do you see that the solution for sin and the greatest terrors of a fallen world are found in a king who will reign upon the earth? You understand, we will watch with our very own eyes Jesus Christ single-handedly end the reign of terror in the world. And you understand what that does is free us, doesn't it? It liberates us to live our lives in reckless abandon to Jesus Christ, knowing that no matter what it is we must lose or suffer in this life, the king will make it right. Speaking of the king making it right, it brings us to Act 3. Act 3, the guaranteed assurance of victory. The guaranteed assurance of victory. And here all of a sudden the Messiah speaks. He was spoken about by the kings and rulers in verse 3. He was spoken about by Yahweh himself in verse 6. But now all of a sudden the Messiah, the king, speaks for himself. And what he reveals, get this, is nothing less than a conversation between he and the Father before time began. Look at the text starting in verse 7. This is the king speaking. He says, I will tell of the decree of Yahweh. He said to me, you are my son. Today I have begotten you. Ask from me and I will give the nations as your inheritance, the ends of the earth as your possession. You will break them with a rod of iron and you will shatter them like the vessels of a pot. You can see it, can't you? The king's speech is almost an entirely a quotation of Yahweh, of what, get this, of what Yahweh said to him in eternity past. I'm serious. This is inner Trinitarian dialogue, reported and recorded for us to hear. And what it is, is the anointed king's side of the story. In other words, this is Jesus Christ speaking in this psalm, giving the ancient biblical theological context and explanation for everything that Yahweh just said. And look how he begins in verse 7. He says, I will tell of the decree of Yahweh. Let me tell you a little story, he says, of the decree of Yahweh. Do you know what that is? Do you know what the decree of Yahweh is? I'll tell you what it is. Those are the blueprints for human history. That's the decree. It is the ancient plan before time began to create a world in which sin and evil and sinners would exist. It has to be. It just has to be. Verse 7 is the one verse version of John 17 in which Christ reveals that all of human history is a drama of redemption unfolding in the world. This is a conversation between the Father and the Son before the galaxies were made, you understand. Because even then, even then before time, listen carefully, the Father decreed that his son would come to earth, become a man, and from the inside out, get this, not only save the yet-to-be-created human race, but even restore the global kingdom yet to be lost by Adam, who wasn't even in existence yet. 
That's the decree. That's the decree. It is the plot of salvation planned and predestined before time began. And my question for you is, is that not a comfort to you? Is the decree of God, the eternal decree plan of God, is that not a comfort to you? Does that not change things for you? You understand the foundation of your security is the decree of Yahweh planned from all eternity. And if that seems hard to believe, look what he says next. I will tell of the decree of Yahweh. Here it is. Here's the decree. He, that is the Father, that is Yahweh, said to me, You are my son. Today I have begotten you. Meaning what? What does that even mean? You know what that is? That's royal adoption language. I'll say that again. That is royal adoption language. You see, in the Old Testament, the, 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 in Old Testament theology, the kings of Israel were, in a sense, adopted by God. It's true. To be the king of Israel was, in a sense, to be the son of God, the adopted son of God, who would be the rightful heir of everything Yahweh wanted to give him. As the son of God, the king was the image of God. He was the representative of God. He was the spokesperson for God. He was the mediator for God. He wielded the very authority of God on the planet. That's exactly what this is. Listen very carefully, however. As eternal God, Jesus Christ was already the divine son of God forever. But when he became a man, he became the adopted son of God who will reign as king and be the rightful heir of everything Adam would lose. How's that to meditate on for the next 20 years of your life? And what would Adam lose? What was it? Look at verse 8. Still quoting the father before creation. This is the promised inheritance. The father said to his son, ask from me, and I will give you the nations as your inheritance, the ends of the earth as your possession. That is a stunning transaction. Can you see what's happening here? Before time began, there was a Trinitarian gift exchange. God the Father offered his son a gift, and that gift was nothing less, get this, than the yet-to-be-created nations and the yet-to-be-formed ends of the earth as his promised inheritance and possession. And what that is is the very kingdom that would be lost by Adam. Do you see what the plan is, what's unfolding here? The kingdom would be lost, but he would send his son to become a man and be the king who from the inside out would retrieve the kingdom and bring the rebel planet to its knees. And my question is, does that change things for you? Does that change things for you? What I mean is, does that alter the way you view the world? Does that change the interpretive lenses by which you understand what is happening in our world even at this moment? Does this change the way you interact with coworkers? That one day things will not always be as they are now. They will change. The king will reign. Does that change things? Does it change the way you shepherd your children? Does that change the way you use your money and spend your time? Because you understand the reason why it is there in the text is profoundly and precisely to alter our passions and priorities and to redirect them in the service of the 
kingdom of the Son. And you know what they say, don't you? They say that you should never bring a knife to a gunfight. But when it comes to war against the great high king, it doesn't matter what you bring to the fight because you're going to lose and you're going to lose everything because when he comes to claim his throne, he's coming for conflict. He's coming for combat. He's coming to pick a fight. He's coming to wage war against the nations with weapons in his hand. Look at verse 9, still quoting the Father. He says, I will give you the nations. The ends of the earth will belong to you. Here it is. You will break them with a rod of iron. You will shatter them like a potter's vessel. Notice the parallels in the text. Broken and shattered like glass. And yet you notice that the instrument that the king will use to shatter the nations will be a scepter of iron. Usually, normally used to depict a symbol of royal authority. But here it's transformed into a weapon, into a battle mace. All who defy the king, this is real, all who defy the king will be shattered in the day of his wrath. This is real. You know people right now who will be shattered by the king. And we would have been shattered by the iron scepter of the king had not God intervened this is not going to end well for them. The king will single-handedly end the reign of terror in the world. And if you think about it, verses 8 and 9, they answer the question from verse 1, don't they? Why? Why are you doing this? Why do you plot in vain? Why Xi Jinping? Why Vladimir Putin? Why Kim Jong-un? Why corrupt lying American politicians who want more and more power for yourselves? Why are you doing this? Can't you see? Everything you lie and cheat and steal and kill to obtain will be taken from you in the day of the great king. The nations are his. Canada is his. China is his. America is his. Everything is his. And all those in rebellion to him, when he comes, he will shatter and no one will weep for them. I think it's very interesting, don't you think, that this very verse right here occurs in Revelation 19, the second coming, which puts this psalm in its eschatological context. And you see what this does, don't you? You see what this psalm does, what this verse does for our lives. You see what this does for our very souls, don't you? You see, do you not, the stability and the security that this is designed to inject into our souls in a life filled with chaos and fear? You see it, do you not? You understand, eschatology and previews of the kingdom are never given in the text as a way to tickle the intellect, but rather they are given by God as a means of survival. You see, to be sane... 
and to not lose our minds in a world of chaos and fear, we must develop what I call kingdom reflexivity. Kingdom reflexivity. What does that mean? It means anytime you hear something crazy or scary or chaotic or madness happening in the world, which is every single day, you must develop a theological reflex in your soul that in response to what you just heard, that you pause and remember the kingdom. We must transpose the terrors of today with the triumphs of tomorrow. We must juxtapose the horrors of today with the happiness of tomorrow. We must turn off the news, turn down the, turn off the political talk show, get off social media, close down the blog, and we must open up to the sacred text and behold the splendor of the kingdom when all things will be made right. Which brings us to act four. The final act in this psalm, which I'm calling the urgent summons to loyalty. The urgent summons to loyalty. Because just when you think you have this God of absolute sovereignty figured out, he proves that he is beyond figuring. Not that he changes. But it turns out that there is more contained in his decree than the mere slaughtering of wicked nations. Because in a clever plot twist that we never saw coming, he surprises us with nothing less than a shocking offer of grace and a call to repentance. It's almost, it's almost as if the lights turn off and a single spotlight shines on the stage and the psalmist himself emerges from behind a curtain and he offers a summons. And dare I say, it is a gospel summons. Look at verse 10. And now, and now, O kings, be wise. Be warned, O judges of the earth. Notice again the parallels. Be wise, be warned, kings, judges. Think it through. Think it through. Think long and hard about what you're planning. Might not be a bad idea to go for a long walk and really consider the consequences that are coming for you should you persist in your rebellion. This is not going to work out. Time is running out for you. And I just want you to know that although you might not be a world ruler of a nation, you or someone you love might be in the same fearful predicament. You or someone you love might be on that same suicidal path of self-sovereignty and autonomy. Is that you? Is that someone you love? And like these kings, you have two ways you can go. You can rage and wage a futile war against Yahweh and his king, or you can obey the summons of verse 11. Look at the text. Serve Yahweh with fear and rejoice, rejoice with trembling. There it is, that's a summons. That right there in verse 11 is what you call people in sin and rebellion to do. That right there, verse 11, guess what? That is the definition of what it even means to be a believer. 
to serve Yahweh with fear and to rejoice with trembling. And we look at the fear of God and we are uncertain of the fear of God. We don't know what to do with the fear of God. That doesn't make sense to us. We are uncomfortable with that. And yet what this verse is, is a theology of fearing God in one verse. And you put that verse together and what you have in verse 11 is the most complete definition of what a relationship with God even looks like. The chief end of man is to serve Yahweh with fear and to rejoice with trembling. It's incredible. Not just service, dry, obligatory duty, but serve with fear. Fear. And biblically, what is fearing God? What does it mean to fear God? But the Bible's multifaceted word to describe how we rightly respond to God in all of his uncreated majesty. What is fearing God, I ask? But the raw, delicious terror that you taste in your soul when you come to grips with the sheer magnitude of the God who spoke galaxies into existence. What is the fear of God but to tremble before him as the treasure of your soul? As the treasure of your soul, which is exactly what the end of verse 11 says. Serve Yahweh with fear. Rejoice. Rejoice trembling. Delight in God and dread in God all at the same time. Where, I ask, where are the gospel presentations that use this as the summons? How many mushy, cordial, accommodating, weak sauce, pandering, man-fearing sermons must pastors preach to try to make God look friendly and likable before they grow a backbone and call sinners to serve Yahweh with fear and to rejoice with trembling. That's what it means to be a believer. That's what it means to be a Christian. You understand, we are in our existential sweet spot when we tremble before God as the treasure of the soul. And if you think about it, verse 11 makes so much sense out of our lives, doesn't it? It makes so much sense out of our lives. Think about it. Verse 11 explains and exposes the ultimate root of our sin, doesn't it? It totally does. Think about it. All sin, unrepentant and unkilled in our lives is the result of the fact that we don't fear God. That we have forgotten that in even our most private secret moments, God is there in the totality of his being. Verse 11 clarifies us the direction of our lives, the mission of our lives, doesn't it? It totally does. Think about it. The mission of our lives is not first evangelism. The mission of our lives is not ministry at first, it, nor is it even providing for our families. Rather, your mission and the most loving service that you can render to another human being is to fear God and rejoice with trembling. That is number one commitment for you on the list. And you understand how we grow in serving with fear and rejoicing with trembling is to get your soul staggered by the supremacy of God from the pages of Scripture. 
You understand the secret to a thriving soul is not to avoid thinking deeply about God, but to push ourselves deeper than ever into who God is. But what about the son? We're almost done. What about the son? We haven't forgotten about him, have we? Because he is, of course, the centerpiece of this psalm. He is the centerpiece of all history. And notice, notice what the psalmist tells us. He, want, he tells us in verse 12 that if you want to avoid taking an iron scepter to the teeth and getting your skull shattered like earthenware, here is the summons. You must kiss the son. Look at verse 12. He says, kiss the son lest you, lest he become angry and you shall perish in the way for his anger shall soon be kindled. The terms are clear and they are unmistakable, aren't they? The king will either be your highest treasure or he will be your enemy. He will be your greatest allegiance or he will be your judge. You either give up all or you lose everything in the fires of his wrath. But it doesn't have to be that way. It doesn't have to go down that way because for a limited time only, there is a blessed and beautiful alternative. There, there's a period of grace. There's a, there's a narrowing window of soteriological opportunity to trust and take refuge in the Son. Look at the last phrase in verse 12. This is unbelievable. Blessed. Literally, that Hebrew word is happy. Blessed are all those who take refuge in Him. And there it is. There is a safe place from the wrath of the king, and it is the king himself. If you try to run away and hide, there will be nowhere to hide. He will hunt you down and find you, but there is a refuge from the wrath of the king, and it is the king himself. He is the only hiding place from his own wrath. And so if you have not done so this morning, you need to come to the king of kings. You need to take refuge in the king of kings. You need to hide in the wings of the king of kings who not only died for sinners in their place, but when he returns, he will make all things be the way they ought to be. And that will either be paradise for you or that will be punishment for you. And the choice is yours. But choose wisely. Let's pray. It's hard to know, O Yahweh and O great King, how to respond to a text like that. And yet, it is easy to know how to respond because we should serve you with fear and rejoice with trembling. I pray that you would help us to do that very thing, that you would help us to be a people who are gripped by who you are, who take seriously that what is in the text is the in-writing guarantee that this is real, and this is glorious, and this is beautiful, and this is majestic, and there is nothing else worth living our lives for. Help us, O oh Lord. Empower us now as we leave. 
to be a people with a message in our mouths, a gospel to proclaim, good news to declare, warnings to impart, and grace to extend. We're grateful for this time together before and under your holy word. May it take deep root in our souls, always for the glory of the King in whose name we pray.